Let's turn to Romans this morning, please. Very good to see all of you today, and welcome. For those of you that are expecting a Christmas message, you might find one in this message. And for those of you that are continuing in Romans, the epistle, I think you'll find a fairly powerful advance in our understanding of this magnificent monograph of the proclamation of our Lord Jesus Christ according to the disclosure of a mystery, a mystery that was hidden for chronological ages in time immemorial, but is now revealed in the scriptures, the writings of the prophets, and in Romans specifically, where we have a survey and a horizon that it is my desire be fanned out before us today and throughout our teaching and studying of Romans together. That we may have hope is the title of today's message. Romans 15, 4. Let's get right to it. My intent, by exerting effort over it, is to discover and then communicate the closely knit argumentation of Romans, the epistle. And there is a single closely knit argumentation in Romans, the impact of which has yet to be felt for our generation. And it's been suggested that Romans 15.4 is a kind of summary of what Paul's all about, what he's doing in Romans the epistle. Romans 15.4. Let's read it together. You silently, me out loud as usual. I'm the loud mouth of the church here. Romans 15.4. For whatever was written before, prographo, whatever was written before was written, grapho, for our instruction. Didaskalia, didaskalian, Greek. This is found also in 2 Timothy 3.16, where it says all scripture is breathed by God. God breathed is profitable for doctrine, didaskalian, instruction, enlightening. It's also found in Titus chapter 2 and verse 10, the doctrine of God, and we are to adorn the doctrine of God, and that doctrine being this, the grace of God has appeared, salvation for all mankind. The grace of God appeared in an infant, in a feeding trough of a stable on a day we like to call Christmas. Salvation for all. And then he goes on to say, so that through the endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have and hold hope. We might have and hold hope. Both those words are in that wonderful Greek little word echo, E-C-H-O, have and hold hope. What was written before 
speaks specifically of that which we call the Old Testament. 39 books of the Old Testament. And Romans actually offers a survey of the Old Testament. I'm intrigued. When I was in Florida, a friend of mine that goes way back with me, in fact, he calls himself the oldest congregant of Tetelestai Church, he said, do you ever teach on the Old Testament? And my answer is today, all the time. And I'll show you why, one reason why. What was written before, prographo, speaks specifically of that which we call the Old Testament. Romans, the epistle, fans out before us a horizon. And I thank you for the pictures here of the sun, sunset up here, a horizon. It fans out before us a horizon of the Old Testament scriptures. In them, God has proclaimed in advance of the Christ event, which begins with Christmas, in advance of the Christ event, in some cases by hundreds of years, the gospel about his son. So Romans involves a veritable survey of the Old Testament. And when we say survey, it brings about the word horizon, because to survey is to see, to investigate, to be attentive to, to study, to examine. We survey that which we see. We survey the horizon that is arrayed before us in Romans. In Romans, we have displayed before us a horizon that consists of a Christological or Christ-centered overview of the writings of the prophets of God. It's a survey seen through the eyes of God, however. It is God showing us what he sees. It isn't just what we see. This horizon is what God sees. Only God can see all of humankind all together going astray. Only God can see all the ungodly justified, rectified, and reconciled in Christ. And he shows us this. This is the vision without which the people of God perish. The people of God are scattered, fragmented, polarized, pitted against each other in all their little cells and denominations because they don't, we don't see this vision. Without this vision, which is a survey, a horizon of what God sees and how he sees his son is lacking today in the churches. It's a survey seen through the eyes of God who is very pleased to speak about his son. In these last days, God has spoken in his son. And he's very pleased about his son. If I were to ask the father, what should I preach on? He would say, well, I'm very pleased about my son. I say, okay. Romans is all about the gospel of God, about his son. That was preached in advance, and this is the most important point, preached in advance, proclaimed in advance. And I'll give you a shocker to start with. Genesis 1, 1 to 3 is not a creation narrative, primarily. 
You know what it is? It's the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of a mystery. Not primarily a creation account, but primarily the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of a mystery. For in the Greek text, it says NRK in the beginning, in Christ. In Christ, it says. He is the RK, according to Colossians 1.18. God made the heavens and the earth. God almost is saying from a past tense view what he intends to do in what is our future. Make all things to be in Christ. When all things are in Christ, all things are made new. So the, the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, are the place wherein the gospel of God's son was preached in advance of the event we call Christmas, which leads to the event we call the cross of Christ. The bloody, ungodly, obscene death of the man Christ Jesus on Calvary, followed by burial, followed by unspeakable glory in bodily resurrection, exaltation where he is now seated at the right hand of God the Father as the King of all kings and Lord of all lords and every knee will bow to him willingly with a universal willingness that's a total willingness and every tongue will acknowledge willingly gladly happily and with praise Yahweh is Yeshua to the glory of God the Father. Romans, then, is an invitation to see what God sees and by doing so to come to a true knowledge of God. That which comes through a survey of creation without the Creator results in a faulty knowledge of God. In fact, it results in a distortion of the knowledge of God into idols, into the worship of the the creature, the creation, rather than the creator. The true knowledge of God is embodied in Jesus. In fact, yesterday I was actually asked at a lunch by a longtime friend and neighbor in Oakmont. He said, I've gotten to the point, he said, where I'm actually asking, what is reality? And I said to him, tried to fix his eyes very quickly, fixedly and say reality is Jesus reality is a person and it's also an event of a crucifixion and a resurrection of Christ and a universal reconciliation and a cosmic transformation we had a long talk so in seeing his son in this way we see the definitive revelation, the self-revelation of God. When you have lifted me up, he said to the, his opponents, when you have lifted me up, that's crucifixion, then you'll know that I am. You'll know the I am. You'll know Yahweh. You'll know the love of God. In Romans 1, 1 to 2, it says, Paul a slave of Christ Jesus. And we've been noting the significance of that title that Paul gives himself, a slave. In later stanzas of that song, 
that Charlie just so beautifully belted out. One of the lines is, the slave is our brother. And I thought, that's true, and we are slaves of Christ. But I also thought that the, the slave is Jesus Christ himself. He took on the form of a slave and became obedient with a universal willingness to his father, even to the extent of death. Yes, death by crucifixion. And this slave of God is now exalted and given a name above every other name. And so the slave is our brother because this slave who became obedient to the extent of death and is exalted above every other name and is the Lord even of the living and the dead. This is the Lord, Jesus Christ. And this is all reality wrapped up in a person. And the slave is our brother because in Hebrews 2.11 it says he is not ashamed to call us brothers, sisters, siblings. Because you see, by the grace of God, one, Jesus Christ, tasted death for all humankind in order to bring many sons into glory, many siblings into glory, so that he might be the firstborn of many brothers and sisters, many Romans 8.29. He's not ashamed to call us his siblings. So I told my sisters recently, we were all talking about mom, and I thank you, by the way, for all of this expressions of consolation. There truly is not so much sympathy, but consolation in Christ and in his body, and you've conveyed so much of that to me and to Pam and to my sisters. But I I said to my sisters, because I'm the older brother, I said, we all, all four of us, you have an old, you three have an older brother, but all four of us have an older brother, and it's our Lord Jesus Christ, and we all look to him, and he's our brother. He's not ashamed to call us that. I and the children you have given me, he says, Isaiah 8, 18, the gospel preached in advance. So both the gospel of God found in Romans and the writings of the prophets are all about God's son, post-resurrection, exposition of scripture. What does Jesus say? He expounds from Moses to the Psalms, to the prophets, to the writings, Proverbs, the histories, the first and second Kings, all of it. And he said, all of these testify of me. And how that Christ ought to suffer to enter into his glory. In John 5.40, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, he said. But you don't come to me that you might have life, for these testify of me. And when John foolishly genuflected to an angel, the angel said, don't do that. Worship God. For the essence and spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus Christ. The testimony of Jesus Christ is the reason the Old Testament exists. It's not to present a group of laws to us to obey because we already know sin as a power hijacked the law and makes man even more sinful. And the more he tries by his own efforts 
to rectify himself, the more he becomes like Saul of Tarsus, who wants to destroy the community of God. The scriptures written by God's prophets are all about God's son, who is the definitive revelation or the apocalypse of God. Jesus Christ is the person and the event in which God is apocalyptically revealed as the creator and the redeemer at once of the universe. In Christ, God made the heavens and the earth. Through the entrance of sin, the earth became void, purposeless, no longer a cathedral for the indwelling of God. That's the story told in Genesis 1-2. Through the entrance of sin, by the disobedience of one man, as we understand in Paul's exegesis, the earth became tohu wabohu, chaotic and formless. Paul exegeted this and said, God who said light shine in darkness has shone into my heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that shines in the face of Jesus Christ. Genesis 1.1 and 1.2 tell the story that Romans tells, the story that Romans fans out with all the characters named and all the players identified in the program. Through the entrance of sin, and I put sin in caps, and there's reasons for it. We put it in our notes. It's in the notes on the website. The earth became dark and chaotic. The Spirit of God brooded over the chaotic situation, the chaotic cosmos, and conceived in a virgin. He whose name would be called Jesus. And as Pastor Brown said in his prayer, stealing my thunder again, he will save his people from their sins. It's all God's thunder. He shares it with all of us. He will save his people means he will save all humanity. Matthew teaches that if you fan out Matthew's message, if you take the effort to see what he's saying and throughout the gospel of Matthew. He saved his people, that is all humanity, as Luke 2.10 says, even Linus knows that. And 1 Timothy 4.10 says, and Titus 2.11 says, from their sins, and the sins here, plural, means all the acts that humankind performed while under sin as an extra-human power. No wonder the angel announced to Mary, blessed is the fruit of your womb. God spoke in Jesus Christ, and there was light in the cosmos. I am the light of the world. He is the light that God spoke. He is the word spoken eternally by God that became flesh. I am the light of the world, meaning I'm the light that God said, let light shine in darkness. Genesis 1, 1 to 3, instead of fighting about it, about a creation narrative or not, or if it's just good poetry, as one person recently said rather foolishly, 
It's the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of a mystery. You see God's son in Genesis 1, 1 to 3. If you don't, you're not reading it rightly. That's what Romans 15, 4 says. The scriptures of the prophets preach the gospel in advance. In places you wouldn't normally see. That's why things pop today that didn't pop to the prophets. Because we know now in history he's come. And his name is Yeshua. And his name means salvation. This is the light that shines in the face of Jesus Christ, which Paul saw, Saul saw, and in the height of his sinfulness, in the height of his breathing of murder, breathing out, that means declaring a purpose to slaughter the people who were called Jesus people. He saw the light of the glory of God that shines in the face of Jesus Christ. In Romans 1.20, we understand what happens when people have a simple knowledge of what was called natural theology. It results in distortion. Only in Jesus Christ is the definitive and final knowledge of God revealed. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And that doesn't just mean if you've seen me while I'm teaching you here, disciples. It means ultimately when you see me nailed to a tree. Bearing the crown of thorns and thistles. That Genesis chapter 3 proclaimed would be the curse of Adam. Thorns and thistles shall be brought up in your tilled ground. And you will labor by the sweat of your brow. And upon the brow of the second Adam was placed those crowns and thorns. Bore the curse of Adam. The gospel is proclaimed in advance in the scriptures. In the curse on Adam, which all that did was depict and present and anticipate the blessing of Christ. Who became a curse for us. The blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, to the nations, to all the peoples. This is the light that pierced the darkness of the heart and the mind and the soul and destroyed the strength of the Adamically strong Saul of Tarsus. This is the light that pierced the chaos, the tohu wabohu of Saul of Tarsus, who in his blamelessness according to the law persecuted the people of God. What a paradox. In his blamelessness, according to the righteousness of the law, or the law's righteousness, the Torah, as far as the Torah goes, was still controlled by the sin because the sin hijacked Torah, hijacked the law, and by it slew me dead, Paul said. That's what Romans 7 is all about. And when the light shone in the heart, mind, and soul of this man Saul, a new creation was brought about. He became a man in Christ, in 2 Corinthians 12, 2. As a man in Christ Jesus, he became a part of a new creation. 
the all things being made new in Christ Jesus. You see, Genesis 1 through 3 is a part of the Old Testament survey that Paul speaks of in Romans 15.4. It is among the writings of the prophets of God, which are about his son. That's why Paul in Colossians 1.18 says he is the RK. In other words, you're reading Genesis 1.1. What's that beginning? What is that RK in the Greek translation? Paul says it's Christ. So it's not in a chronological beginning. It's in the person named Jesus Christ that God makes all things, the heavens and the earth. Because it's in Christ Jesus that God reconciled all things in heaven and on earth to himself. When you know this, it's hard to hold on to the claim that you need to be right or that your group needs to be right. It's very hard to breathe out group biases, which is what Paul is intending to demolish in Rome by this truth. So then, Genesis 1 to to 3 is a crucial part of the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the apocalypse, the stunning revelation of the mystery of God, which is his intention to, what, make all things new by making them be in Christ and by making Christ comprise all things. NRK in the beginning, the idea of a gospel preached in advance in the old Testament is found perhaps most famously and most easily identified in Galatians chapter three, eight, when God says he preached the gospel in advance to Abraham. So we have the Genesis Account continuing in the Abrahamic account, which really takes up most of Genesis 12 through 22, and then more. The gospel preached and advanced to Abraham. And what did he, what was the gospel? We studied it a little bit under Better Call Paul. What did God, how did he preach the gospel? He said, Abraham, in you, that is, in your seed, all the nations will be blessed. Not cursed, but blessed. All the nations, not some from all the nations, all the nations. In your seed, and Paul said, that seed is singular, and the seed is Christ. There's a new mother of all living, and her name isn't Eve, her name is Mary. The fruit of her womb is Christ, but Christ envelops all humanity because now she's the new Chuva, mother of all living. See, there's a Christmas message hidden in here, just like there's a gospel message hidden in the writings of the prophets. But now it's no longer hidden. It's coming up. It's popping up. Right here. This is what Christmas is all about. Charlie. <laughs> and Pastor Brown. <laughs> Smiles and glares. No, kidding. In him all the nations will be blessed. The gospel preached to Abraham in advance of the Christ event 
was an unconditional promise that opened a universal horizon. In your seed, which is Christ, Galatians 3.16, all the nations will be blessed. The gospel was proclaimed in advance in the Genesis narrative that had to do with Abraham, whom the scripture teaches was an ungodly man from a long line of idol makers, not only idolaters, but they made the idols that people could put on their mantles and worship in their high places. Because, you see, Abraham illustrates more than anything else the great point made in Romans 4-5. It's something that people kind of neglect in their theology and in their scriptural teaching. Uh, it's called God. Abraham illustrates that God justifies the ungodly. And he does it with a righteousness or a righteous act that God performs outside of the law, as we'll see as Romans unfolds this horizon before our eyes. God's word about God's son proclaimed in advance to Abraham actually elicited faith in Abraham. And that became faith which God considered then and considers now. To be the possession of righteousness or the possession of rectification. The Genesis narrative about Abraham was more profoundly a proclamation in the scriptures of the prophets of the hope inspiring gospel of God's son. That's what it's about. You want a key to interpreting? You want to teach an Old Testament survey someday? Start off with Genesis 1 through 3 and blow the students back through the back wall with what I just told you about what that's about. You say, then, do you believe that God created everything that was created? Of course I do. John 1, 1 to 3, not only did God make everything and call everything into existence that didn't have existence, but he didn't do any of it without the word, which is his son. Of course he did. In fact, Romans 4.17 identifies God as two unique features about him. He brings into existence or calls into being that which has no existence. And he raises the dead. There goes human pride. In fact, Romans provides not only a glorious conduit for the water of the word to come to us, but it provides a glorious conduit for all the pride of man to go out. It's called into a sewer. It's the end of the pride of man. And it's pride which results in ressentiment, which is the greatest expression of sin's control of human beings. It involves a desperate need to be right, to demonstrate it over others, and it involves a group bias riddled with prejudices. Then that ressentiment has never been so pronounced in history as it is in this decade of human history the second decade of the third millennium since Christ's birth. The Romans 
ought to burst on the scene again right about now, I think. So then, throughout the Genesis narrative, that's probably all I'll talk about today is the Genesis narrative. God's word about God's son proclaimed in advance to Abraham. An unconditional promise with a universal horizon. In your seed, all the nations will be blessed. Not if all the nations are good. Not if all the nations believe. They have no choice in the matter. This is the proclamation of life from God. And Laban and Bethuel, you both got it right in Genesis 24:50. We got no choice in the matter. God proclaimed life for all in Christ, even as he decreed death for all in Adam. In the day that you eat of this fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. What's that? A proclamation of death. For whom? Adam. And Adam was just a beginning. You know what he was? He was just an anticipation of a second man, Christ, in whom all would be blessed with life. For as in Adam all die by divine proclamation and divine decree in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, so in Christ all will be made alive by divine proclamation, by the command of the eternal God. Romans 16, 25 and 26. God commands life. And God elicits faith. And the fruit of the Spirit is love. Where is boasting then? The big question in Romans. Where is boasting then? And the answer, it is excluded. Which lends to my theory that you could probably look at Romans as a kind of fanning out of Jeremiah 9.23. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. But not because you know what that'll do? It'll form a little group of intellectuals and self-styled scientists and philosophers. We put it all together and we deny the existence of some God. And we're right. Well, of course you are. Or as Sean Connery said before he hit the guy in the throat with a karate chop, but of course you are, dear. I'm a black belt in karate, but of course you are, dear. Boom! The guy goes, oh. Well, anyways, I can't help it. I'm riddled with movie memories. Thank God it's been overcome by the memory of the word, but hope. The Genesis narrative about Abraham was more profoundly a proclamation of the scriptures of the prophets of the hope-inspiring gospel of God's son, eliciting a thrill of hope. For the weary world and for this weary soul. After all, Abraham, in the light of this gospel, it says he hoped against hope. In the God who calls beings into existence that have no existence. And who resurrects the dead. So Genesis 1.1 and Romans 1.4 come in here. Hope is a salient subject in Romans. It's a leading subject. You find it twice in Romans 4.18. He hoped against hope. What do you mean you hoped against hope, Abraham? I mean, I was 99 and my wife was 90 and we were told we were going to have a kid and that's hopeless. 
That's hopeless. So I hoped against that hopelessness because my hope was in God who brings into existence things that don't even exist before. Oh, and he raises the dead, which is why I have total confidence to offer my son Isaac on the altar. Because God raises the dead. What situation in life, in your life, in my life, can be more important than this God of hope and what he offers? It's found in Romans 5, 2. It's called the hope of glory. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, but the hope of the glory of God is Christ Jesus in us. It's Christ in us, the hope of glory. Colossians 1, 26 and 27. First Timothy 1, 1. Christ Jesus, our hope. It isn't so much that we have and hold hope, which is Christ Jesus, but that our hope, Christ Jesus, has and holds us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Hope means the intense and sometimes thrilling anticipation that the glory of Christ will be resplendent in all the earth, as Habakkuk 2.14 says. In all the nations, like the promise to Abraham says. In all of creation, in all of its recapitulated times, glory throughout. That we may have hope was also a prominent theme in a couple other little studies we engaged in. Revelation, Rev the book, and the fourth G, John's Gospel. Hope, that we may have hope. So Abraham, what'd you do? Well, I hoped against hope. How do you define your whole life, Abraham? How do you sum it up? I hoped against hope. I hoped when there was no hope in my situation by sight, in my deadened flesh, And in the deadened womb of Sarah, I hoped. Well, who'd you hope in? The God who brings into existence things that don't exist at all. If God brings into existence things that don't even have existence, I think he can bring a child from Sarah through me. Yes, me, he said. I could be very crude now and say that his confidence was in the almighty God and not a pill. But I won't. I wouldn't be so crude. Because that would then lead me to speak of crude things like a manger. And like a cross. And like a rich man's tomb. Empty. So between the Genesis narrative of 1, 1 to 3 and the Genesis narrative of Abraham in 12 through 22, there's a narrative of Adam in Genesis 3, and Paul takes Adam up. I'm taking Adam up after Abraham because Paul did. Because he said, hey, this one tops that one. Adam tops Abraham in the consideration of the gospel. Paul interprets Romans in Romans 5, Adam in Genesis 3, because Paul sees the sum of Adam's life reached in his single act of disobedience. What would you do, Adam? Well, I disobeyed. In his act of unfaithfulness to God's decree, which involved a warning and even a promise, if you will, there's a promise here, you will die, Adam, as a result of disobedience. But it's funny that there was, Adam was kind of just there to 
anticipate another Adam whose obedience leads to life for, let's see, it's used 75 times in Romans, so I can't think of the word. Oh, all. So then, what do we have in this Genesis narrative? If not the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of a mystery that was hidden up until the time when God spoke about it in advance through the prophets. Far in advance, 1,800 years in advance when he preached it to Abraham of the Christ event that begins with Christmas. So then... And I'm going to just accelerate until we hit the end of this message. Adam's disobedience, a single act, Paul shows us in Romans 5, opened the door for sin, S-I-N, as an extra human power to reign as king over all human beings from that day forward. I'm going to engage some genomic genetic studies when I teach Romans 5. Because... In genetics, there are new discoveries that seem to give the lie to Adam being the one through whom sin entered into the world because they make it a genetic idea. It's not a genetic idea, nor was it passed on through us genetically. It simply means that when Adam sinned, he opened the door for sin as a power to control the whole of the human race. In fact, the whole of creation over which Adam was given dominion. So sin is a power from which we cannot extract ourselves. That's why addictions are a power that are supernatural and even demonic in their origin. They cannot be overcome by human will and human power and human willpower. Nobody beats addiction. Nobody beats disease. Nobody beats cancer. God is the healer. God has to step in with his divine action. In the gospel, we are under sin, the whole human race. Paul presents a universal homardiology, the study of sin, a universal one. And then he shows a universal reconciliation. And then he applies that to little groups that think they're special over other groups. And he says, how can you, if you were ungodly and God justified you, rectified you, set you right while you were ungodly, and he died, Christ died for you while you were still actively under sin and a sinner, and if Christ died while you were still an enemy, God reconciled you to himself, and that's the case with you as well as the case with your brothers across the street here in the tenement church in Rome. How can you think that you're strong in faith and they're weak in faith, and how can you judge your brother who doesn't participate in your liturgies and rituals, and how can you despise your brother for participating in them? Who do you think you are? Where? How can this bias breathe anymore when you understand universal inclusion of all under sin and by a divine action only a universal reconciliation while we were still sinners, while we were still God's enemies? The story is told in Romans 5. This is the love of God that's poured out in our hearts for one another. This is the love of God for one another. So, Adam's disobedience, that single act, opened the door for sin, 
capital S-I-N, as an extra human power to reign as king over all human beings from that day forward until the eschatological moment of the deposing of sin's reign and death's power in Jesus Christ. Not blessed was the fruit of Eve's womb. Not blessed was the fruit of Eve's womb. For Cain would murder his brother as stark evidence that sin crouched in waiting, says Genesis 4-7. It crouches in waiting to get men to do its bidding. And in the fratricide, the murder of a brother in which Abel died, death was shown to reign as king over men. It was shown to reign. Sin was shown to reign in Abel, in Cain's act against Abel. Death was shown to reign in that Abel died. But Abel died like a lamb dies through the slitting of his throat, the lamb that he offers. And so in Abel, bound up in a sacrificial death, there was a hope of humankind a hope for all humankind, including Cain, that would be redeemed from the reign of death and the wages of sin. So indeed, wrapped up in a sacrifice lamb, Abel speaks though he's dead. Indeed, the later seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15, whose heel would be bruised by the biting serpent, would crush the head of the serpent, put away sin by the offering of himself and end the reign of death so that in Adam all die, but in Christ all will be made alive. You've got no choice in the matter, preacher, evangelist, TV evangelist, pope, cardinal, monsignor, bishop, reverend most holy, holy of holies, or dear old Dr. So-and-so. Got no say in it. So how much less does a syrup-sucking stump jumper from Vermont have to say about it? Speaking, of course, there are Bernie Sanders. <laughs> so, as someone said, and I take it as a light joke, you never trust a man who combs his hair with a balloon, but we'll go on now. Adam's disobedience... That, to me, that's a metaphor. That's a parable. It's called don't trust any politician. Don't put your trust in men. See, so I'm not party here. You don't know what party I'm of. I may not be of any. You see, I'm not of this world. Never mind. Blessed are you, Mary. Blessed is the fruit of your womb, because like Eve, you are now the mother of all living, because you are the mother of the humanity of Christ in whom all humanity is made alive. Your seed crushed the head of the serpent, and as Paul announces right in Romans 16.20, right down the road from where we are on Wednesday nights, God will crush Satan under your feet shortly, and Satan is a name for all of the powers, including sin and death and principalities and powers that are too strong for us that Christ overcomes and the Spirit overcomes in our practical living as we walk in the Spirit. Blessed are you, Mary. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. 
Because the one act of disobedience by the one man, Adam, brought about by complicity with the hissing serpent and brought sin into the world and death as a ruling power was undone as we are in our Adamic ontology in Romans 7 is the picture. Oh, wretched man that I am. What? This message brings us to a place where we're undone. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then you got Romans 8. By one act of obedience to the extent of death on a cross by the one who always exists as God and to assume the likeness of sinful flesh. In that flesh, he became a slave. His universal willingness before the father became the gift of universal willingness to all of humankind and even all of creation, which has been subject not by its own will. It's been subjected to futility. And it waits for the liberation and the emancipation of it from slavery to corruption, just like we do. We also groan with creation. And so, by the act of the one man, Adam, in Genesis 3, death came to all human beings according to the decree of death by God. But by the act of obedience of the one man, the final Adam, Jesus Christ, and by the command of the eternal God, rectifying life came by grace and is given to all human beings. It's conveyed to all human beings. You've got no choice in the matter. And you can choose to refuse it all your life on this earth if you want. But you'll be raised unto life and raised unto a confession of Jesus Christ, an irresistible recognition of who he is. So in closing, by the decree of death made by God, all in Adam die. But by the command of life of the eternal God, all will be made alive in Christ. It should be remembered that Paul is a slave of Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to say a couple, I might as well drop a couple more shockers. Let's just consider that they're in your stocking. There's always a surprise there. Indeed, the slave is our brother, but the slave, our Lord Jesus Christ, is not ashamed to call us his brothers because he tasted death for all human beings so that in, in, in him God would bring many, and that means all, human beings to glory. The wages of sin is surely death. That's Romans 6.23. But in the context of Adam's sin and Christ's obedience, it means that the wages of sin is death for all human beings in Adam. But the gift of God for all human beings is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Most preachers are preaching against that truth today. They think they got something to say in the matter. But we'll have to talk to Granny Hawkins about what all that big talk amounts to. No, I'm not going to say it again this week. 
So here's the reply. Someone will say, yeah, but Genesis is the Pentateuch. It's part of the law, the Torah. It's not part of the prophets. And I'd say, you're dead wrong there. It is part of the prophets. A prophet wrote it. So the writings of the prophets can be a general term for all the Old Testament, just as the Torah, the law can be a general term for all the Old Testament, just like the scriptures. Paul is not a covenant theologian. He's a scriptural theologian. He doesn't just use scriptures as proof text to show that his gospel is true. He shows the Old Testament survey to be the proclamation of the gospel of God about his son. The Bible is a single narrative. It isn't really Old Testament, New Testament. It's scriptures. It's a single narrative. It's a witness of Jesus Christ. And so this proclamation ultimately is to produce unity among believers. That's the point of Romans. That's why we're doing the pincer movement. We come at one flank from Romans 1. We come at another flank from Romans 16. We push toward the center. We push toward the center. And we destroy in the process all those little groups in Romans 14.1 through Romans 15.5 and really 15.3. All those little groups that claim to be strong in faith here, weak in faith there. Some despise their brothers. Others judge their brothers. And there is no weak in faith, no strong in faith. We've all been given equal faith by the righteousness of God, by an act of deliverance in which all are called to participate in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So we're doing the pincer movement. Now, I'm going to close because this opens the road for us to start speaking about the love of God in Christ Jesus, from which we can never be separated. And again, the more we recognize this, the more we push toward a goal in Romans fifteen six that with one mouth, with one mind, one mouth, we all glorify God. Now, I want to close with this because this is my little gift to you for Christmas. And for some of you, it might be coal in your stockings. But... I have, we have a friend, I'll say I have a friend, but we all have a friend. His name is Bill Carpenter, and he's from the Potter's Shed in Ohio. And he's what I call a constant poet. Jean Le Carre wrote a book called The Constant Tailor or something like that, or The Constant Something or Other. The Constant Gardener, I guess it was called. Well, Bill is a constant poet. He produces poems which glorify our Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe some of you read them, I have. And they are strongly encouraging all of us who read them. On the contrary to Bill, I'm what you call an accidental poet, not a constant poet. And once in a supermoon, I actually accidentally write something that turns out to be sort of a poem, even though I don't think this is really a poem. I don't know what it is. But in my recent experiences of both intense loss and hope of piercing grief mixed with a thrill of hope, literally. I wrote this, and I don't even know if it's a poem, but it's my Christmas gift to Tedelestai Phalanx this year. It's sort of like writing from a place from which a lot of truth emerges. It goes this way. I am nailed 
writhing to a bloody tree. But I find it is the cross of Christ which ends me. I am laid white within a blackened vault, but I find the folded clothes of my Lord. I rise alive to the Father of mercy, but I find it is the rising of Jesus which begins me. Father, we thank you for this wonderful identification of our Savior with us and of us with our Savior. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. And yet it is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in my final days in the flesh, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate this grace of God. For if rectification comes by works, then Christ has died for nothing. So may our future in Tetelestai Phalanx be this horizon, Father, not of what we see, but of what you see through our own eyes. And may we see through the eyes of our crucified Lord, for he sees all humanity as a field ripe for harvest, not as a field ripe for judgment. And may you promote unity for this hope that we're talking about today is not many hopes. It's one hope. There is one hope of our calling. There is one Lord, even the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of the living and the dead. There's only one father, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one body, the body of Christ that will one day be the universal creation joined to him. There is only one baptism and it's the baptism by the spirit into this body. There's only one faith and it's participation in the fidelity, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Enlighten us, Father, as to this hope. Grant this vision to the church far and wide and by it destroy the fences built around groups. Destroy the biases and the boasting. Demolish the Adamic ontology that demands and wants to be right so that we can rather be righteous and slaves to righteousness and function in the obedience of faith. This I ask in Jesus' name, and I ask it for all of our generation and the generation to follow, not only for our little phalanx here of Tetelestai Church.